0: Welcome to First Hand, a podcast that goes to the original source, or hears first hand from those who work with subject matter experts. We'll step back from the lectern and hear front row insight from commissioners, staff, and more in Alaska Governor Mike Dunleavy's administration. I'm Patty Sullivan.
1: We have people on boots on the ground now. We got a contract last week. We have over 100 people in Alaska today to add to this. We have more coming.
0: Today is September 30th. 2021. And our guest on this new show is Adam Crum, the commissioner of the Alaska Department of Health and Social Services, the department that has been at the center of our state's fight against a pandemic for the last year and a half. Welcome, Commissioner Adam Crum.
1: Thank you, Patty. Glad to be here.
0: Commissioner Crum, if you ran into moose hunters who for the last few weeks were out camping on gravel bars and recently came back out of the woods and asked you, what is going on with COVID-19 in Alaska? What would you tell them?
1: First off, uh, lucky you that you get to be out hunting and spending time out in the woods. That sounds glorious and something I wish I'd been able to do over the last couple of years. Uh, The first thing is, is that uh, COVID is still here. It's still amongst us. It's something that we are dealing with, that we have to talk about on a daily basis, and it affects kind of our overall system. Uh, One of the primary things is that uh, if you've been out of it, not really paying attention, the Delta variant is a little bit different compared to the earlier surges we saw because it is so highly transmissible. Uh, that it really does jump from person to person with an incredibly high transmission rate. And so we are seeing this. And uh, Governor Dunleavy made the point that uh, everybody's going to be affected by the Delta variant, either whether by infection or by vaccination.
0: Mm-hmm, good point. It's an election year. How do you keep politics out of COVID care, we'll call it?
1: That uh, That is the tricky question. It's a question for the ages, so to speak. Um, what we've done and our goal with Governor Dunlavey has really made a point to let his science teams speak, to speak to data, to speak to facts, to speak what they believe, and to have these conversations. And this is something that's uh, it's nice and reassuring because our epidemiology team will reiterate the fact that how much they appreciate that uh, the administration and leadership as a whole has allowed them to do their jobs. Whereas you look at uh, my roles, my peers from around the country, and a lot of chief medical officers and public health officials, there is an incredible turnover that we have seen around the country with these positions. But Alaska's public health team is whole. And that cohesiveness, this messaging, what we're trying to share and support has really shown in our success.
0: Can you take us back to the scary beginning of COVID-19 in Alaska? What was the dire prediction here of deaths, cases, and the spread of infection, and how did Alaska fare?
1: When uh, Alaska was first in the country to have to deal and really think about COVID-19, because a phone call I got on a January Saturday morning asking from the Administration of Children and Families is, would Alaska be willing to allow a plane from Wuhan, China land in Anchorage? And so these were Americans working at the consulate in Wuhan who were being evacuated out, and they needed a refueling stop. At that point in time, there was very little information about what this virus was, the risks, the other issues. But when I mentioned that to Governor Dunleavy, he didn't even take a pause. Absolutely, these are Americans. We're going to help them get here. Our health team quickly stood up, our Emergency Operations Center fired up, we worked and collaborated with our partners at the airport and with the Anchorage Fire Department and hospitals, put together a plan, had some briefings with the CDC, and allowed these individuals to come into Alaska safely. Then when we moved on beyond that, at the forefront of our minds, Governor Dunleavy made sure that we all understood what the 1918 pandemic of Spanish Flu meant to Alaska. Himself having spent a lot of time out in rural Alaska, he has heard accounts from his uh, mother-in-law about what happened to villages and how some areas had 50% of Alaska natives wiped out. And so when you think about a highly contagious respiratory virus, this is something that we were very mindful of, of how dangerous this could be to our indigenous population. So this was something that he wanted us to be aware of. We also wanted to pay attention to what this meant for our hospital system. I think it's our, we have the third lowest per capita of acute care beds in the country, if not one step lower, I have to check that stat. But uh, another item that we wanted to make sure was, what does this mean for us? How are we going to care for it? What's our supplies? And really how does Alaska fare as a whole? Because essentially we are an island and how are we gonna get supplies? How are we gonna get them here? And as we looked at that, the early projections on this, which thankfully turned out to be false, but every projection from every known person called for absurd numbers like 11,000 deaths in the first year, for the state of Alaska alone. And when we looked at those numbers, and we saw this and our cases quickly go from 00, 1,10, and they started climbing, we were looking about, how do we protect this? Do we have the tools in place, and how do we adjust? And so some of the things we did are very early on was all about protecting our healthcare system, and that was our primary goal. And so we wanted to make sure that we kept that up and stable for the individual who gets in a car wreck, for someone who has a heart attack. They, they can still find acute care in Alaska. And so we did items like that protecting the system. We had to work to get infectious disease protocols set up. Hospitals had to figure out how to engineer negative pressure rooms. How are they actually going to provide care with the gear they have? Reusing of personal protective equipment. There was a lot of stuff across the board. And once we realized... Um, We did initial things early on to help stabilize that. And then we realized, okay, we can handle this. We were very quick to remove any possible restrictions. We wanted to make sure that we actually worked to allow Alaskan society to function as a whole. But by that point in time, there was a lot of changes around the country as well.
0: Wow, what a great summation on that. A year and a half later, has Alaska handled the pandemic better or worse than most states?
1: I would say better. Uh, We were... uh, very good early on at protecting our seniors and our congregate settings. So very early on in the pandemic, you looked in late January and February, you saw the state of Washington had long-term care facilities where they had individuals that were getting the virus and then expiring quickly. Same thing with the state of New York. And one thing that Governor Dunleavy absolutely has a heart for is our elders. And so we put uh, together plans and protocols. We worked with our epidemiology team, our senior disability staff, and we put together plans restricting visitation, making sure that staff understood surveillance testing, mitigation protocols, and how to protect this very vulnerable population. And I believe that Alaska's success in that regard truly shows. And when you look overall with our stats, um, because we worked so quickly to protect our villages and our congregate settings, I believe that's where Alaska's success shines through.
0: Mm -hmm. There were some very disturbing numbers in the lower 48 in the congregate settings, the senior homes.
1: Yeah, uh, the numbers were very scary about the rates we'd have. There are certain groups that had like 30 or 40 percent mortality rates in areas, and we wanted to absolutely protect these individuals. And, you know, it's a moral responsibility for those in the direct care of the state that we have to take care of. And so Department of Corrections has been a tremendous partner throughout in protecting their population. Close congregate setting. You can't really space them out. But the things that they did and the tools and tricks and how they adapted their processes, same thing with Alaska Psychiatric Institute, my Alaska Pioneer Homes, Juvenile Justice and these other settings that are in direct care of, uh, for the state of Alaska, we really did protect and work to keep those individuals safe in there.
0: That's right. What were some other firsts we stood out pretty uh, dramatically?
1: Yeah, uh, a pretty neat thing that um, it got talked about very early on but hasn't been regarded much since Was that uh, the testing supplies globally were very very tight and Governor Dunleavy uh, said you know what we're going to take this into our own hands and so he actually reached out to a company called Trivaris based out in Palmer um, and asked them said can you help us build swabs and these were the initial things that were used for testing to actually collect the samples in the nasal passageway and this, this company out in Palmer actually started producing a great amount, and that actually led to Alaska being once the, one of the leading states for testing per capita was because of our local partners very early on. So much so that we actually had other states reach out to us saying, how did you get your local industries to jump in and manufacture and invest in this? And so uh, Traveris was a great partner on that, and Governor Dunleavy really did see how the benefit of doing Alaska-first activities were going to keep Alaska in front.
0: How do we do on uh, rolling out the vaccine?
1: You know, uh, very early on in the vaccine, uh, we were number one across the board. We had a, a good robust plan for our vaccine advisory committee of volunteers working to make sure that our frontline workers, our seniors in congregate settings, and each one of those steps was put together in place. And then throughout that, uh, for the first couple months, we were by far the fastest state to roll out vaccines, to have the highest per capita, to really get our workers and our vulnerable populations covered. And we covered that until about, uh, it was like late March when we started to slow down a little bit, but we got the vaccine to those who needed it most right away.
0: And all Alaskans had access by March 9th. Is that right?
1: That sounds about right. Yeah.
0: How about the uh, the monoclonal antibody distribution? That was pretty early on as well.
1: Yeah. So the monoclonal, anti, uh, uh, monoclonal antibodies, or MAB is its shorthand now, sometimes in news articles, is a treatment for COVID. So this is something that if an individual tests positive, that they can then reach out to see, am I eligible to receive this? Am I in a high-risk category to get this? And it can help offset the chance that you would get a severe illness and have to go to the hospital. And so uh, very early on, when this technology was made available, uh, we were, I believe, the first state to truly roll this out. Uh, it became available initially to hospitals, but they had a lot going on trying to figure out how this would work because it's not just a shot. It's a little bit of an infusion. and It requires staff time to do this. Well, in Alaska, we had set up an alternate care site at the Alaska Airlines Center at the University of Alaska. And what we wanted to do was to make sure that we took advantage of that. And so we set up a monoclonal antibody infusion center at the Alaska Airlines Center. And we had people set up going through there, getting and receiving this treatment. Um, And then once we had that process going, we coached along our hospital partners and clinics, and they have stood up along the way. And so we have been one of the first states to administer it and have been consistently providing this throughout.
0: And of course, that is in limited supply.
1: It is in limited supply now. There was a unique situation that uh, we had seven states, uh, due, to the, due to the Delta variant surge, seven states were using over 70% of the nation's supply of monoclonal antibodies. And so it was available commercially. States like Alaska and other states like Nebraska actively spoke up and said, we don't have the buying power to match these large states. How do we get access to this? So the federal government stepped in and bought the commercial supply and is now allocating it on a combination of a per capita basis as well as a utilization. And so they don't want people to get the supply and hoard it. They want to get it and use it.
0: Mm -hmm. How did we do on vaccinations for 12 and up?
1: Uh, You know, on June June 1st, we did expand to include anybody that was 12 and up because that was the initial uh, emergency use authorization for Pfizer So we also expanded it uniquely to visitors. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted individuals to say, you know what, we have available supply in Alaskans. Alaskans have the choice and the opportunity to receive the vaccine. And so other people who wanted to come into Alaska, you can come here and get a vaccine as well. We wanted to open it up to our neighbors and partners and have people come see our great state, maybe invest a little in it. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it seemed to be a pretty good Um, We had three airports that had vaccine clinics that were open seven days a week throughout that process. Mm
0: -hmm. Pretty incredible. Uh, Supported tourism, for sure.
1: Yeah, it feels like it did. I've never, I haven't gotten a final report from ATIA or Commerce, but I'm sure they were tracking that. Mm -hmm. And I know anecdotally, uh, when I was out and about, and uh, you'd hear people, I'd just kind of ask questions, oh, what brought you to Alaska? And they'd say, well, it was the vaccines and also to go for a charter or something Mm -hmm. like that. So I was like, thank you.
0: (laughs) Yeah, at that time, it was uh, hard to get a vaccine uh, in the lower forty-eight.
1: Yeah. Uh, a lot of states had a difficult time kind of figuring out how they were going to allocate it and to who and how to administer it and store it. That was one of the, the proudest things that we can be in Alaska is that uh, we're a geographically large state, geographically diverse with a lot of different equipment. But all of our clinics around the state are partners in the tribal health system and throughout work together for the logistics aspect to really make sure that these uh, vaccines, which require uh, shock stabilization, ultra cold storage, very specific timelines on—are they still viable or not? We worked, and not only did we get the most shots in arms per capita, but we also had one of the best lack of wasted rates early mm. on as well. And so this just shows a testament on how we treated this valuable resource and really tried to expedite that. Hmm.
0: And also that collaboration with the the native hospital.
1: Yeah, they were our co-leads uh, for our vaccine allocation. And we were the first state to say, you know what, we are going to partner with our tribal health system and we're going to work together on this. So give us the dual allocation and we will help distribute that as opposed to two separate groups working opposite each other.
0: Mm-hmm. That was great. And that brings me to this uh, remark. Uh, in March of this year, a statewide public opinion survey of some 800 Alaskans showed a large majority of Alaskans approved of the state's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic what did you think and feel upon reading this after a year and a half of going through it it's
1: good to know that Alaskans understand what we've been trying to do and where they where we stand throughout this you know one year into this we were all tired of COVID Uh, You know, if the general public thinks they're exhausted of COVID after a year and a half, you should come talk to my staff. This is something that uh, we're not the Department of COVID. We're Health and Social Services. We have a lot of other items that we want to take and tackle and improve health care for Alaskans across the board. And dealing with this has not been easy. Um, We understand the the patience and grace, and we're very appreciative of the general public for the questions, the concerns that have been raised throughout, and we've tried to be responsive to that. And so we're going to continue to really try and practice those items to make sure we bring the information that's being requested forward to Alaskans.
0: Since March 2020, you and Dr. Ann Zink and Governor Dunleavy, among other officials, were part of more than 70 press briefings on COVID-19. How would you characterize the state's outreach to the public on covid
1: I would like to think that we did a tremendous job on this. Um, Governor Don Levy, from the very beginning, has made an absolute point that we are going to be transparent with our data. We are going to share information to Alaskans in a clinical fashion. We're not going to try to stir things up. We want people to know where we're at in either, whatever the circumstance is, we're just going to share. And I think we've done a very good job at that. Not only with the press briefings from the governor, who's incredibly accessible to the public that way, but we've also made sure that my health team, can address issues. And so we work when we have these things called ECHOs, which is a large Zoom format that we do with healthcare providers on a weekly basis, that we do with school districts on a weekly basis. We have pr- uh, planned ones with the media. And so this gets the entire epidemiology team, virologists, the lab experts. Uh, infectious disease experts, pharmacists and testing gurus and logistics so they can really get into the nitty-gritty details of everything that goes into this response and so the whole team being available that way, sharing this info with the public as we work through each of these unique items that pop up, I think has been a really good aspect and something I'm quite proud of.
0: Your neurons are firing at an incredible rate, (laughs) like yes. Uh, you were appointed just before the pandemic, and so was Dr. Ann Zink. She arrived on the job as chief medical officer. Alaskans might not have had either of you in the thick of it.
1: Yeah, this, is, uh, this has been an interesting job, to be sure. Yeah, it was uh, just right about a year mark when this started, um, and it has been nothing but a uh, series of uh, very pressing events, so to speak. Uh, you know, the three days before Governor Dunleavy was sworn into office, we had a very large earthquake in Alaska in November of 2018. And so that really kind of set the tone for the administration that it was going to be natural disaster stacked up. We Then we had the incredible fire season that we had to deal with in 2019. And then we roll into this, and there's been a lot of items across the board just really trying to keep – the 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 train on the track so to speak and so this is a interesting aspect it's one of those that's like oh man yes we're tired but uh, it's the people we work with we enjoy and the mission that we do we're trying to protect Alaskans trying to do it in a temperate manner and sharing the most information across the board is what keeps us going
0: the notion of your project management skills handling this is um, a bit of an understatement I think
1: well, thank you. It, that's uh, you know that was one aspect. Uh, you know, my my credentials coming into this are unique for most people. Mo- most people uh, in this role will have come from either healthcare or hospital administration or be a physician, uh, and I came from the business world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I worked on large scale projects and uh, did a lot of items that way. But I have a master's in public health, mm-hmm. and so I can speak the language. And so I came into it looking at it from a different manner, which is different experience. And so I think what that does is that helped me appreciate. Um, Some of the skill sets that we do have on staff. I have a tremendous amount of very skilled professionals that work at Health and Social Services. Mm -hmm. I've got PhDs and MDs uh, across the board that have these very unique skill sets that are absolutely focused and specialized to this response. And my job that I see it is to put them in the best position to succeed, to give them the tools and the resources that they need in order to actually maximize their efforts. Mm-hmm. Uh, ultimate goal in management is you want everybody to operate at the top of their license. And that is what we've been trying to do.
0: Like a good NFL coach.
1: That's, that's the goal, <laughs> It's the dream.
0: In May, 2021, your department's, yet another stacked uh, disaster, your department's website became the target of a cyber attack after fighting the virus. You then had this sophisticated hackers trying to gain access to Alaskans' private information. What were your thoughts upon learning this?
1: Oh boy, here we go again. Well, I hate C words. I hate COVID. I hate cyber attack and saying that stuff because these things really are detrimental. What we saw with that cyber attack, um, you know, that it wasn't ransomware, um, that there doesn't seem to be any ultimate goal other than disruption, is very frustrating. It's almost like a vandalism aspect. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it came in and it knocked out some critical servers uh, that actually affected us on how we do our jobs. One of those being vital stats, and so birth certificates and death certificates getting out the door to Alaskans in a timely manner absolutely affected everyone across the board. And it was something that we took very seriously. Uh, it had knocked out our background check system, uh, a couple other things, our grants and contracts, and there was these all these things were just really greatly affected that my staff, which had already been stressed for over a year due to COVID and changing processes, had to go from electronic and digital to analog processes, doing it via paperwork, Mm. faxing, phone calls, and it slows down everything. And it just put pressure on an already stressed Alaskan economy, providers, and the staff we have at Health and Social Services.
0: Quite a bit of pressure on your staff to get that information out. Yeah. The cyber attack created a backlog of entries for the dashboard on COVID in the state. Has this muddied our understanding of how the virus is moving through the state, especially in the last week or more?
1: So the cyber attack primarily affected uh, how we do our death certificate review. And so what that did is it affected um, the vital stat system because as we had things stack up and then we have to go through this really robust process to where we identify death certificates, what was put on them, did that patient have COVID and there's like checks on this because... And ultimately, this is important for Alaskans to understand. The state of Alaska does not mark and or write on death certificates. We do not do any judge on that whatsoever. It is the attending physician which fills out and marks cause of death or contributing factors to death on a death certificate. All we do is go through a review process. And so you may have seen recently that we've had a lot of deaths that have been posted. I think it was 44 on one day last week and 21 on Monday of this week those are not all recent deaths these actually go back through april so april may june july a whole bunch in august and what these are are items that we now that our vital stat system is back up we can go through and do our review process and so yes they were all reported in a short time frame because again we want data transparency but they also are over a longer period of time and even with these large-seeming amounts of deaths that have been recently reported, which are all unfortunate, Alaska is still the third lowest COVID case fatality rate in the country. It goes, I believe it's Hawaii, Vermont than us. We're Mm -hmm. still just ahead of Maine.
0: Mm -hmm. So let's unpack this a tiny bit more. Uh, The surge of new cases caused by the Delta variant and the newly reported cases of the data backlog are sort of confusing together. Particularly on September 24th, when we had a record high case count of 1,735, how do we know which are that day's reported cases and which are the backlog of cases?
1: So uh, that's a fantastic question. Um, So we we tried to help unpack this and provide the nuance and context by even doing a press avail. If there's particular items like this, which we see are going to be confusing to the public, we we schedule press availabilities to make ourselves available to really spend time. And I think it was uh, 90 minutes that we tried to address this directly with the press, give them questions so they can help share the story. So, that initial day of the 1,700 cases, um, you know, 700 of that might have been backlog items. Mm -hmm. So, what ends up happening is this information comes in. And so, while this wasn't due to the cyber attack, this was due to internal process. Uh, So we wanted to actually speed this up. And so over the last couple of weeks, Dr. Zink and I have been working with staff and encouraging how do we automate our processes so that items that come in get loaded faster, that we're not actually doing the the super in-depth qualitative check at first. We need the info first, and we'll work on our deduplicating and verification stuff. But we want to share that to get that backlog out so can see this is truly what's going on. And so you saw through last week a number of high cases, uh, 4,000 cases posted from Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. Um, And then you look at Tuesday, and it was like 700, Mm -hmm. and then 900, and I think we posted 1,200 today. Mm -hmm. So we're back in that we're going to have that swing range because we're pretty close to current we're always going to have these boluses or large bundles so to speak that will come in from small clinics we're a geographically diverse state okay so we've got some clinics that are working their tail off all around the state testing trying to get stuff in but they may not be able to submit on a daily basis and so they'll send us piles of faxes or transmit like 50 to 100 tests all at once and so they may not even send us all their negatives either so that also affects our positivity rate which is an interesting aspect and so we get all this information and so it's going to swing that way but we feel like we've gotten through the majority of the backlog to where we're seeing where our legitimate cases are Mm -hmm. now what you're going to see is perhaps some daily swings from the large labs because they'll have different volumes of testing that come in and out at once it's not the same amount of people test every day if that makes sense Mm -hmm. it's going to change
0: i think in the last week the The seven day count or or more uh, was particularly skewed. The rate was skewed. Uh, the surge from the delta variant of the disease is on a steep uptick presently, right? But the the CDC Center for Disease Control's recent rankings are they're hard to grasp.
1: I have gotten uh, many uh, text and message from friends and family from around the country because we've made the national news about our seven day case count. Uh, well, that the important thing on that to note is, That is a seven-day case count of what's reported. Mm -hmm. Again, some of these cases could be weeks or a month old. Mm -hmm. And the most important thing to Alaskans is when you go to our case dashboard, scroll down to the bottom, you're going to see a graph that shows the onset date. That is the most important because those bars will show you what the overall curve is. The date report date doesn't really mean anything other than the fact it's a mark in time. It's not a useful epidemiological tool. We really look at the onset date to see where our cases are at and how that's working. And so we want to make sure that Alaskans can understand that, uh, to make sure that's the most important thing. Because, yes, we're setting records and there's national articles saying, oh, Alaska's got the most reported recent deaths. Well, if those deaths are from April, that's not affecting us now, so to speak.
0: And it's Yeah, it's not recent. Yeah, it's It's not not recent. They're,
1: They're not necessarily important stats, but they're very good clickbait.
0: It's it's real uh, information, but uh, not reported in the time frame that the title suggests.
1: Yes. The the headlines on them does not provide a lot of context. And even, even for the articles that do provide context on it, it's normally down by paragraph 12 or 14.
0: That's right. And so instead of being the worst uh, in the nation as far as the uh, rate of reported deaths, we're actually what?
1: We are the third lowest in total reported deaths since January of
0: 2020. That's so... Uh, polar opposite
1: it is and that's one of those unique aspects and so the key thing on that is yes we've got a backlog of deaths that have been reported but i also want to reiterate and stress we do have current deaths that are occurring yes but it's not at the massive rate that's being reported and so there is a little nuance here that we want alaskans and the public to understand the delta variant is here it does affect individuals in different ways. We are seeing severe I- illness and hospitalization and people in the hospital spending up four to five weeks at a time in very dire care situations. Mm-hmm. And so this is the overall pressure and disease burden, which we've been talking about on our hospital. And we do have individuals that are passing away. And so we don't want to make light of mm-hmm. that. No. We want to be taken about what is the recent aspects that are truly occurring in the last couple of weeks to see where we're at, as opposed to those that have occurred more than a month ago.
0: Absolutely. Separating data talk from heartfelt, you mm-hmm. know, feelings uh, as well. So third lowest death rate per capita in the nation overall since this pandemic began. How about our vaccination rate for seniors?
1: So our vaccination rate, you know, I don't have the specific stat in front of me, but uh, it we are very high. I know that uh, um, it's 75 percent for most of that population are pioneer homes. Uh, the residents there I think most of the homes are over 90% for our Ooh. residents, okay. and which is a tremendous thing. They've, they've seen the benefit of that. We've gotten a great deal of our staff vaccinated, and we're continuing to protect those individuals, even though we have this really highly transmissible uh, virus in the community.
0: That discrepancy between the rate and, you know, the real rate, um, how do you handle that? How do you perceive that?
1: You know, I just, data transparency is very important. Context is very important. Uh, When you're in something for a year and a half, everybody has become a little bit of a junior epidemiologist. We've all studied the numbers. We all know things now that we didn't before, like R-naught, transmissibility rate, epidemiological curve. These are all items that are now part of our lexicon, Mm -hmm. which we all have a varying grasp of. And so it's important for people to really understand what it means. Just because something is reported doesn't mean that it occurred then. And so it's the context of that is what we really want. And that's what we want people to truly understand. It's not the cases reported on that Mm -hmm. day. It's the onset. That's what's most important. It's not the deaths that happen to be reported because it's a monthly review that we do Mm -hmm. of death certificates. And they trickle in sometimes at various means. And so we want to make sure that Alaskans in particular understand we want to give data transparency and context. And we try to address this on our science echoes and on the media echoes, which we provide. And so whether or not it's in the media being reported, we do have these recorded dialogues, which the public can go and listen and hear from our expert team themselves if they'd like this information.
0: Mm-hmm. That's is that the echo? Uh, yeah. And these, they're on the public. Yep, they're website. on
1: yeah. our uh, our COVID Sorry. response website, which you can pull up and. Uh,
0: Given you and the governor are so ardent about transparency with the numbers, it must drive you crazy, that discrepancy with that uh, worst in the nation ranking.
1: It it does. It drives me crazy. It's frustrating just because it kind of skews the overall conversation. It highlights, yes, there is a serious situation that is occurring, but it also swings the pendulum too far. We want people to understand what is going on and also that there are active things that are being taken care of. Uh, You know, one thing that may not have been if you're understood by the public or not, is we talk almost on a daily basis with our hospital association. Mm -hmm. And we have been for months. And we have formal calls once a week with all of the hospital CEOs, chief medical officers, and chief nursing officers to hear from the boots on the ground what is occurring. And so we have all these conversations. And so when ASHNA sent us their letter requesting certain items, we took that very seriously. We addressed that. And we even posted our response letter mm-hmm. on everything that we have done to actually address this and why we addressed it in that way.
0: And ASHNA is the hospital? ASHNA at- is okay. the
1: Alaska State Hospital Nursing Home Association.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. What is the um, rate of vaccination in Alaska?
1: Uh, right now, uh, I believe we're at 63% that have one dose, one dose or more. Mm-hmm. It's like uh, 386,000 Alaskans.
0: Hmm. And how does that compare with other states?
1: Um, I think we're below the average a little bit. I think some, uh, the national average is a little bit higher than that. It's not too far off. Okay. Um, but uh, I have to say, overall, where we're at, this is kind of internally where we projected where we may hit that we're going to have vaccine hesitancy, that because of the information age that we're in, any and all information is available, mm-hmm. and so including misinformation and mistaken information. And so how we try to address this is just by making ourselves available. We actually have created a speakers bureau where we've got local physicians and or experts in certain areas around the community, hmm. which if groups want to talk to, we'll send these individuals out. Myself, will go speak to groups. Dr. Zink will go speak to groups and share information just to address their concerns, to bring them information, and actually share what's going on. And more often than not, they understand, they get some of these kind of myths that they hear the most, because a lot of our job right now is just myth-busting, just Mm -hmm. letting people understand what is going on. Mm -hmm. And to be clear, myself and the governor 100% believe it is a personal choice. I respect that. Mm -hmm. I want everybody to understand. It absolutely is a personal medical choice. And it is so important for us. We've said this throughout. You have to meet people where they're at. Mm -hmm. Some people will have reasons that they believe or medical reasons, which is true, that they're not going to receive that. And that is absolutely fine. And what we just ask is if you don't receive that, then you have grace with those who ask for you to get a vaccine. And for those that are vaccinated, that you also have grace for individuals for what their reasons may be they don't get it. We do understand that. So our job is we just want to share the safety numbers that we do see, the efficacy numbers that we do see with the vaccine and make sure that's widely available. Mm -hmm. But from my perspective, from the governor's perspective, it is a personal choice for individuals who want to get a vaccine. Mm
0: -hmm. Dare I ask, do we know any rate of folks with the vaccine who have contracted the disease?
1: So, yes, uh, those numbers have changed quite a bit because the Delta variant really took hold in July when it became the dominant strain in the state of Alaska. And so we're presenting numbers basically of January 2021 through June of 2021 and then July going forward. Uh, I believe that the the vaccine aspect was about an 8% breakthrough before that. Um, now it's much greater. It, mm-hmm. It's I want to say it's over 20% of our cases are vaccine breakthrough. Hmm. And so what that means is the vaccine itself may not necessarily stop all infection. It does reduce the risk. Okay. But it greatly reduces the risk of severe illness and hospitalization. And so uh, it's either the – I guess we're at the end of the week. Maybe, maybe tomorrow or next week we're actually having a monthly bulletin which will provide the August numbers on vaccine breakthrough, if that makes sense, because it's about a month lag, because not all of the cases can we verify at that minute in time were they vaccinated. It requires a study of who did we post, that person, was it a reinfection, were they vaccinated, and it requires that's where some back-end work is occurring.
0: Are you predicting it might lower that rate of breakthrough?
1: No, I, I think we're going to see that. Um, actually, I think the, late, the last one in July was a little bit lower than that. And I think we're going to see this over 20% mm-hmm. of our cases, are vaccine breakthrough.
0: Now, of course, if you don't look deeper, 20% breakthrough doesn't sound good.
1: Yeah, correct. And that's one of those things that uh, the definition of a vaccine, right? What is the definition yeah. of a vaccine? Uh, a vaccine is something that actually uh, elicits an immune response. That is what a vaccine is. And so we'll see this across the board. Not all vaccines prevent all infection. They can slow infection. The main reason for this vaccine under Operation Warp Speed, under President Trump and Secretary Azar, the RFP was to develop a vaccine that would limit severe illness and hospitalization. Mm -hmm. That was the number one goal of the vaccine RFP under Operation Warp Speed with President Trump. They were successful in that. What we're seeing with the Moderna vaccine had an early efficacy rate during the clinical trials of 95%. Mm -hmm. After eight months, it's like 92% efficacy. Mm -hmm. It is long-term immunity that is hanging on there. Mm -hmm. And immunity is more than just antibodies. It also is things, your T cells and B cells and other aspects. I am not an immunologist, (laughs) but, you know, I hear enough from them to understand that part. It it is a very varied process, Mm -hmm. and we're seeing this high rate of efficacy with these vaccines.
0: Mm -hmm. And so I imagine, despite knowing that 20%, you would have gotten that vaccine again.
1: Yes. Yes, I would have. Um, because it, while it doesn't prevent all infection, what it does do is it does prevent the severe illness and hospitalization. What we're seeing who is in the hospital right now, the vast majority of that, and we'll share the exact numbers through July and August, are those that are unvaccinated. And for some reason, it does affect more people than others. Um, we've kind of noticed this little bit of a trend as that m- families may be hit more. Uh, I actually heard a on the Central Peninsula a story about a, it was a f- mother and son were both in the hospital for a very long time, and one of them passed away. And we're mm-hmm. starting to see that with certain groups here in mm-hmm. South Central. And, you know, I don't know if we'll ever know why certain families were more affected by the virus than others. Mm. This happens uh, – there, there are these responses normally that occur through virologic, virologic things like this. Okay.
0: Hmm. Last week, Governor Dunleavy announced news that aims to offer relief to the hospitals and the healthcare system. Uh, talk about that a little bit.
1: It is uh, pretty fantastic what we've been able to do. Um, so, the federal government put it through the GSA, General Services Administration. Organized and lined up a certain number of vendors for each region of the country. So we're being in region 10 uh, I think we were the first or second state in the region to ask for help for this to get this contract set up So what it is is these vendors actually put together and hire healthcare workers from around the country think about it like a staffing agency for traveling nurses, but these ones are locked in it's guaranteed and defined mm-hmm. timelines of work and pay and so they were able to recruit, as we've seen the Delta virus surge uh, slow down greatly, drastically in other parts of the country. Think Louisiana and Florida, their cases have really fallen off. Mm. More these traveling workers are available. And so we have this deal in place with DLH Solutions. Um, and to bring 470 healthcare workers into Alaska. More than 100 are in Alaska already. Mm, that's excellent. And so uh, we're waving through the background check process. Uh, Department of Commerce is doing a tremendous job on the licensing board to give them expedited licenses so these individuals can work. The primary goal, which we're going to do with them, at least this initial batch, is focus in the Anchorage and Matsu area to give the larger hospitals relief. Uh, so they can actually perhaps staff more beds more staffed beds actually allow for patients held in smaller hospitals to be transferred here and these are not all for COVID patients if that makes Mm -hmm. sense absolutely these are individuals that more staffed beds you got somebody perhaps at central peninsula who's not getting the correct level of care there can be better care in anchorage if a staffed bed is open up and so that allows more access to local care if that it's like we're trying to do anchorage is the pressure relief valve Okay. That relieves the pressure on the whole system, and all local community hospitals can respond better if there's more capacity in Anchorage.
0: Those workers are heading to Anchorage and Matsu first, is that right? Yes. Okay. $2 million in rapid tests are coming. Are those here yet?
1: We got our first shipment yesterday. Excellent. Um, we have more to come, uh, and these are fantastic because these are clia waves CLIA is one of the governing bodies over labs and for. Uh, um, Just really kind of the overall quality standards for these tests and so it's not necessarily over the counter these are good high standard tests and so uh, with these uh, we want to make sure that we're providing access to them to Alaskans we're sharing them with different groups and these would be at home rapid antigen tests but we're trying to do purchasing power from the state side our goal is protect hospitalization provide access to the vaccine To make sure that treatment through the monoclonal antibodies is available and also testing supplies and equipment are available and so we are pushing all of those buttons as much as possible to make sure alaskans have access
0: talk briefly about crisis standards of care and how that was authorized last week for hospitals
1: so alaska is a unique state in the fact that we do not have crisis standards of care uh, in statute And so uh, two weeks ago or three weeks ago, you've seen the state of Idaho enacted crisis standards of care. This was a bill that they actually were able to pass in 2020, seeing this on the wall, this writing on the wall that they may need it. In Alaska, we don't have that. Uh, What we do have under HB 76, which the legislature passed in April of this year, uh, grants public health emergency power to the Commissioner of Health and Social Services. And so that allows actions to be taken place for the good of public health, But it also uh, allows um, specific clauses in there for civil liability and other aspects if you act in good faith. It does not cover uh, negligence, gross misconduct, things like this. And so what we did was the crisis standards of care was we did an addendum to the public health emergency, which we signed in April. What this says is that it sets up a process that if a hospital reaches out to the state, there's a notification process, a crisis care committee, or a CCC, is set up, reviews the request from the hospital, says, okay, what are the alternate care you want to provide? Are there different strategies and tools that we can help you with or point you in the right direction? They make a recommendation and then say, all right, they got this alternate level of care. And then as a commissioner, I would approve yes or no. And if they do that, then they're acting at request of the commissioner, and they'll be covered under the liability or immunity side.
0: Mm-hmm. What's an example of that?
1: An example of a crisis standard is really it's an alternate standard of care. It's mm-hmm. a better way. Crisis standard is just a general catch-all phrase. It's alternate. It's different levels of care.
0: Is it? Is that rationing care? What is that?
1: It's triaging care. Okay. And it's it's just changing how it goes because we're in Alaska and our healthcare system in the U.S., we're used to a gold standard, ultimate primo across-the-board level of care to where you've got a nurse that is consistently working like every hour on the hour, depending on what it is, will be there, your meds will be checked. And that is how our, our health practitioners are, are, are trained, and that's how they're used to providing care. And so if they provide any level of care less than that, it really gets outside their comfort zone, and they want to make sure that they're covered. And they've been doing a tremendous job. And more often than not, what this document, this addendum was, was letting our health professionals know that the state has their back we are with them as they continue to act in good faith to protect Alaskans, we'll be there with them. So an example would be uh, an ICU nurse is typically would be staffed with two patients. And what this means is that, you know what, an ICU, they could be uh, stationed with uh, three. Okay. Right. That, that's an example of an altered level of care.
0: Okay.
1: And that's what this means. They could, somebody could be, you know as what? As opposed to being admitted and treated in a room, they could be treated in the waiting room and then discharged. Mm-hmm. It means that the care Alaskans normally get and expect is probably going to be changed. doesn't necessarily mean rationing care. It just means it's going to be changed and altered in some way.
0: Okay. So a case such as, let's just say someone wipes out on their dirt bike, broken ribs, they come in, the ICU is full. How does crisis uh, standards of care kick in?
1: You know, maybe they, they would be seen and treated in the emergency room and perhaps uh, kept in the emergency room or put in a med surge bed that has been modified to have some kind of critical care units there tied to it. Okay. And so it just learns. The, the, the issue we have with that is that uh, our nurses and healthcare providers are trained in different ways. Not all are critical care, not all are designed as respiratory therapists. And so there's different issues across the board, and it's the staffing aspect on what that looks like.
0: I think we're to the easier questions now. <laughs> Give three words for how your employees are handling the pandemic and why. Gracefully,
1: amazingly, and awesome. The, the staff at Health and Social Services, uh, the general public will never know the burden upon which they have taken in order to do this. Um, our labs stepped up in a big way. We still are one of the leading uh, agencies around the country for genetic sequencing of the viruses. Not only are we running tests to get these out there, we're actually finding out which of these variants there are in Alaska. Um, The epidemiology team has completely changed how public health is delivered in Alaska. The normal toolbox is positive, contact trace, isolate. Well, if such high numbers, contact tracing is not available, how do you do this? How do you empower communities to step up? Our logistics team we had to acquire new warehouse space because the state took on a procurement role for bringing in supplies and then shipping to communities and so our warehouse staff runs around the clock in order to do this my communications team Mm -hmm. meets with local municipalities emergency operations center and coaches like these are the big items we're seeing this week here's the items that are sharing they're doing messaging campaigns they're posting they're doing story edits across the board. We're trying to do graphics and share and support. And it is just everybody, and I, I'm missing you know, thousands of others, but it is just across the board the level of effort that has gone into this uh, with individuals that have stepped up. You know, and the amazing thing is, is Health and Social Services gets a lot of the attention on this. i like Alaskans to know, all state agencies have adjusted Mm -hmm. when you know in order to protect alaskans governor dunleavy last year instructed most state agencies to go to remote or telework if possible but still provide services to alaskans and so every state department has changed how we provide services to alaskans and we still try to do it in a very high manner and as you know we've gotten feedback on that i know that agencies have adjusted they've changed how they go about it protecting staff while at the same time serving alaskans and that's the most important part Throughout this, Governor Dunleavy has never let us lose focus of what our mission is. We are workers for the state of Alaska to serve the public. Mm-hmm. And so we need to continue to serve the public throughout. Whether that comes from relief dollars, whether that comes from grants and contracts getting out the door, our teams and our staff have really worked tremendously to get this done.
0: Absolutely. Can you give us one anecdote of someone whose work impressed you and why? I know there's so many people, as you just mentioned. but
1: uh, You know, I'm, I'm going to throw one out. that's uh, a little bit different. Is uh, So health and social services, we have the biggest budget normally. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, last year throughout the process, uh, Governor Dunleavy and Chief Staff Stevens at the time uh, were able to get the legislature to agree to um, – letting the the executive branch administer a lot of the CARES funds. And so it was almost it was over four hundred million dollars was put with health and social services to help administer. Mm-hmm. Whether this be for state agency requests, hospital relief, nonprofit items like this. And so this is a lot more burden. On top of our already biggest budget, we're asking my financial team and staff oh my gosh. to develop programs that can withstand an audit potentially two to three years from now. But also make sure it's verifiable that it's going to the greatest need and partnering to get these dollars out the door. And so I want to I want to give a shout out to uh, uh, my grants and contracts team and procurement. The things they've done in buying supplies and getting dollars out the door and supporting and working with communities is something that's a very unheralded thing. Mm -hmm. But uh, I give an example of the $50 million uh, nonprofit program we partnered with the Alaska Community Foundation. Um, That was the money that had to initially be moved from health and social services staff out. Mm -hmm. The Community Foundation did a great job of getting it in a great need, uh, making sure that we had Alaskans across the state got the benefit. But all of these dollars had to move out, and that's the process. And they they had just done a tremendous job. They never get any public recognition, Mm -hmm. and we would not be where we're at today without them. Mm
0: -hmm, Absolutely. Despite a lot of my back-in-time-looking questions, we are still in this. Uh, What words of encouragement would you say to the stressed, frontline healthcare workers and perhaps your staff?
1: I would say... um, I hope it is very evidently clear right now that uh, the governor and myself very much support and appreciate the work they're doing, that the focus we're giving, this investment of $87 million of bringing in healthcare workers, of making sure that they have the support they need, that supporting them in alternate standards of care is actually there, that the work that they're doing is not going unrecognized. And that with these surges and these super high case counts, they've been able to do creative things like at-home monitoring and other aspects. So we're working with our hospitals, with our providers, to give them all the tools they can. We're going to continue to push testing. We're going to continue to push treatments like monoclonal antibodies and vaccines. But I want to say that there, there is a little hope. We have people on boots on the ground now. We got a contract last week. We have over 100 people in Alaska today to add to this. We have more coming and so as they come in, I hope that uh, the healthcare workers currently going can continue to hold on. They see a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel, that's some relief, and perhaps they can stop doing these double shifts and weekend shifts um, and actually get some time to refresh and relax. And, uh, you know, to my staff, the same way is that we, we've got our arms wrapped around this. This is rough. September is a rough, rough month that we're going to go through this. And I'm, I'm hoping that we're going to start seeing some decline here throughout October but i know that our healthcare system is going to be stressed and strained for months this is something the general public needs to know our normal standard level of care is probably not going to be back till after christmas because our workforce is burn out their processes have changed and we are seeing this disease burden in the hospitals for an exceptionally long period of time
0: Mm, This is so informative. Thank you so incredibly much for your care and the long hours put in by you and your staff for Alaskans.
1: Well, thank you so much. Uh, Glad to be here. Glad to share this information Um, and just look forward to continuing the response and serving Alaskans.
0: This is firsthand at the Atwood building in Anchorage. I'm Patty Sullivan.